Hello everyone, I'm Samantha Jane Smith. And I'm Jacob Keynes, and you are listening to the Classical Queer Podcast. Well, today we are joined by the wonderful Simon Henri, who is a, a composer, artist, uh, a visual artist, a performer, many things, as, as you will hear. We'll talk about all their, their myriad facets of, uh, of artistry. But uh, Simon is a Montreal-based uh, performer, artist, like I say, composer. Uh, and we're here, to, we're here to talk about some compositions and some, some wonderful artwork that you've done. And we're so thrilled. I mean, you're, you're a, a, a fan of the classical queer world anyway. We've chatted before and we've had the, the opportunity to meet uh, in person in Montreal. Um, but you've never been on the podcast. So welcome, Simon. Well, thank you. Thanks so much to uh, for having me here and uh, to have that uh, discussion. I'm so uh, happy to talk to you both uh, once again. Yeah, thank you. And uh, we were just talking before we started recording that you've been you've been traveling a lot and you've been in uh, a bunch of different places. And this is the the funny thing we keep talking with artists, and and I'm sure we both uh, have been encountering people who. Uh, just in our day-to-day life, who have had so many projects put off because of the pandemic that we're just starting to be able to do them again. And so you were just in Paris from a, a trip that was postponed by two years. Um, and so it's great to hear that people could start working again and, and traveling and bringing their, their art to different places. And so what what were you bringing to, uh, to that? Uh, was it a festival? Was it a concert series? It was a tour? It was a book tour. It was uh, the Marché de la Poésie uh, de Paris, so the poetry marketplace of Paris. And um, uh, then uh, we had some uh, some presentations in Brussels too. Um, and it was planned for 2020 in June when my book, uh, The Love of the Unsightly Birds, uh, came out, uh, which was a book about a book with graphic scores and poetry uh, that was released uh, in 2020, just at the beginning of the pandemic's perfect time to uh, launch a book. And uh, we were supposed to go on tour and it was moved a couple of times. And now it finally happened uh, two years later. And I, I had another book also to present a collaboration with uh, Nicole Brassard, uh, poetry and also graphic scores. Uh, so I was uh, lucky enough to present both books uh, in the, the Paris uh, book fair. Phenomenal. For, for maybe for those people who are listening to the podcast and don't know your work very well, Simon, would you like to say a little bit about the graphic scores? Because this is a fantastic part, I feel, of, of what you do. And, and maybe to somebody who's not familiar might, might not understand that. So could you just briefly give an explanation of those? Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, I've been working with graphic scores for 15 years now, so I yeah, I have this uh, <laughs> idea that everybody knows what's a graphic score, but indeed, it's a, it's a very specific kind of uh, way of writing music. Uh, instead of uh, putting uh, black black circles on lines like in traditional uh, uh, European classical music, uh, I draw. Uh, abstract paintings if we want and those paintings are actually music and since uh, I yeah for me when I draw it's automatically music everything I draw is um, actually very precise sounds um, and the what I've I've found to be very f- interesting in my uh, in my uh, my years of exploration of that mean of uh, conveying music is uh, how 
working with people with those scores in dialogue, we can go from performing the score extremely precisely or to go very far from what I had in mind. Um, so they work with the quite intuitive, I think, um, codes. Uh, for instance, when something is uh, higher in the page, it's higher pitched. When it's lower, it's lower pitched. Uh, when uh, the colors correspond to different instruments. Um, so, for instance, uh, voice is often red for me. Uh, bassoon is uh, might be uh, ochre and uh, etc. Horn is yellow for... Uh, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know for what reasons. <laughs> Might be <laughs> very culturally uh, linked or <laughs> or something in my brain. I don't know. But yeah, and um, usually uh, the scores are read from left to right. And uh, in the past five or six years, I've started also working with scores that people can just go all mm -hmm. around the pages and choose elements they want to perform and uh, with the idea of giving to the audience a global experience of the sound world that is on paper and uh, that is now also on video because now I scan those um, graphic scores and I animate them to do uh, video scores. Mm. So that's the, <laughs> that's the summary of 15 years of exploration. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, for me, it's kind of interesting because when I first saw the video scores, I kind of, I mean, I wasn't quite sure what was going on. I kind of looked at them and thought, okay, I mean, it's artistically very nice on their own right. Let me just say that as a start. Well, thank and you. <laughs> when I to listen to both together, that suddenly you start, I don't know what it is, something in the brain puts the two together. And, and then suddenly you start looking ahead and you can sort of, you start to automatically intuit what's going to happen, even though you really don't kind of know. It's it's kind of a fascinating thing. And and anybody who's listened to this now, I thoroughly recommend taking a look, uh, listening at the same time, because I think it makes a great experience. So I, I, and it was fascinating to me how the brain works, kind of like for a scientist, it was like, oh, how's the, how's, why is my brain doing this? It's fascinating, really. And also, I must admit, I uh, I with the years I've started to place some uh, hints for the listeners. Uh, uh, I, at the beginning of, of a lot of my scores, there's moments where there, the musicians are asked to perform musical elements that for me are very didactic. So for mm. instance, a line that goes from up of the page to down of the page, and you'll have a violin playing very precisely the line going downwards. So the, the, the listener and the, the audience usually have access to the visuals too, so they they see it. They not necessarily have the make the link, and that's okay. But it 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 brings uh, something in the back of the head. So when it comes later on, uh, they they often have an idea what's going to happen. It becomes a game actually, because sometimes the musicians will perform exactly what you think they will, and sometimes they'll just do whatever they interpreted from the graphic. And you bring up a, an interesting point there. So like it, graphic scores are, I mean, having done many graphic scores, graphic scores are fascinating from like an audience perspective from a composition perspective, but they're really fascinating from like a musician playing them perspective as well. Because if you are used to playing graphic scores uh, and, and are kind of familiar with the language of how to uh, interact with them, it's fascinating, but it's really fascinating to put graphic scores in front of musicians who have not played them before and to kind of talk through the, the method, talk through the, 
the the process, talk through uh, each composer's specific kind of um, like key or framework, and then let them go with it is a really beautiful experience. And I've, I mean, I've I've played some of your graphics course with ensembles, and you're um, writing things for an ensemble that I play with coming up in. I think it's next year. I'm not entirely sure. Um, but to put those scores in front of students is like a really fascinating process um, because there is that maybe get, connect between like the, like you say, the, the didactic like uh, framework that you present and they look at it maybe initially and say, what, what do I do with this? Or maybe don't believe that what they're going to play whatever it is that they don't know that they're going to play is going to come out and it is going to connect. And then you can watch their faces and they're playing and they're like, oh no, I, I am playing what's on the page. Like I, I absolutely it's am actually playing. working. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it's really neat to watch, like as a musician, it's neat to watch. I mean, audience is great, you know, that's all fantastic. But as a musician, it's neat to watch them uh, connect those dots and to play them that way. Um, and many of your scores, I mean, they get played by professionals around the world and it's, it's, uh, and I think we've maybe even talked about this a little bit, but what's your experience with putting those scores in front of uh, like old hardened orchestral musicians who are used to playing uh, Haydn <laughs> and Strauss and, and Mahler and Beethoven? Uh, tell, tell our audience about that a bit, because I'm sure that's a fascinating thing too. <laughs> Mention no names, Simon. No, no, names. no, no names. No, no names. names. <laughs> um, actually, I think that the relationship that I've had with those um, with those people has evolved a lot in uh, through the years, uh, especially because I've learned how to present it in different manners to different people coming from different backgrounds. Uh, I think the first time I um, I presented a graphic score to a, a very traditional orchestra, I didn't have necessarily all the means of communication and adaptation also. Um, so some people were extremely into it, you know, usually double bass players and percussionists. <laughs> and uh, uh, let's not name those the sections that are <laughs> usually less into it. And uh, but um, going uh, going through a lot of ensembles, uh, interacting with lots of people from different backgrounds, I've understood that it's the resistance often comes from a place of insecurity more than a place of conservatism because um, musicians are artists and they are, even though sometimes it uh, the, the, the practice of orchestra might might uh, become a habit at, at some point um, I think that this need to create beauty is what's what's the most important and uh, through the year I've learned to adapt myself a lot and adapt my music a lot to the, the to to play some elements of security for performers that would uh, for whom it would be more uh troublesome i guess um so for instance i had this wonderful experience of i wrote a piece for accordion and a violin and uh one of the performer um when they saw the graphic score, they were like, oh, that's that's cool, I can do that. And they started playing and uh, it it sounded very 
personal to that performer. It was a bit far from what I had in mind and a bit far from the graphic elements, but it was very close to the poetical universe of the piece. So I, I kind of accepted that, uh, that distance. And the other performer, uh, they were more from a classical, very, uh, very traditional classical background. And, uh, they were very insecure in front of those dots and spots and, <laughs> and crunches. And, um, I discussing with them, I added staffs, uh, on top of the, of the graphical elements. I added uh, in some sections, very precise, uh, rhythmic elements, uh, some pitch elements just to give them the most, I don't know, floor on which to dance. And the wonderful thing I, that happened is that in the end, those two performed together, having very different, uh, relationship to the, to the, to the graphic elements. And in the end, uh, the, the, um, the, the, the performer that had a more classical background, they were closer to what I had in my mind plastically for the sound, uh, being a bit, a bit farther from, uh, from the, uh, the energy maybe of, uh, of my writing while the other was farther in the plastic of the sound, but closer to the energy. So together, I think that it was a beautiful dialogue <laughs> and, uh, yeah, diversity was, I think was the, was the key, the diversity of approach. That was a very long answer to your question. <laughs> it's kind of interesting because the people we've interviewed or we've talked to certainly over the last year or so, there tends to be sort of, I don't know, maybe I'm being a bit extreme. It tends to be two camps. One camp is very precise and, and is kind of like we, we have, you know, this is the rhythm I want. This is the thing. It's all written out in very, you know, exact sort of things, which I guess is the, kind of in my view the old classical approach i don't mean it in a bad sense by any means and then there's kind of like we've got another group of people who are like yeah this is kind of the spirit of the music yeah. and and we go off and get it you know and and you you're close to what you want to you know as long as you're getting it right in spirit and i kind of wonder thinking back to my musical education which was awful um for me I'm whether sorry. or not there's a better no i mean whether or not there's a for some people there's this a better method in the sense of the more graphical approach you know i can appeals to people you know a different group of people and i do wonder if we're if we're kind of missing out on musical people because of the fact we try and have such a rigid approach to dots on a page and lack of flexibility so i kind of i kind of wonder if there's like um if if this is i maybe you guys as musicians actually know a little bit more is this a kind of do, do people teach this education is this something which gets into educational establishments this kind of um musical scoring I mean, it certainly is more and more i i have a like music ed background and so i i have a for better or worse knowledge of like curricula across Canada. And it's uh, been put into at least half the provinces here where they, uh, in your kind of first three years of learning music, there's a heavy emphasis on graphic scores because it allows you like uh, uh, an entry point without facility, basically, uh, in some respects, not to say that graphic scores don't require facility, but there is a method of, of entering graphic scores without, um, you know, having all of your 
scales down pat and all your like time signatures and key signatures and, and like an incredible like for wind players mouth facility or for string players uh you know facility on the instrument itself and so it's there is a usefulness i think what's interesting for me and maybe some of you have you have interesting thoughts on this i'm sure as well is like it's interesting to use graphic scores as a method to unlock deeper um artistic uh, methods, I guess, for even for people with e extreme facility, people who have like a, a crazy understanding of their instrument, um, it frees people up in a really interesting way. People who um, maybe can play the hell out of Mozart, but like it's very structured. When you get them in front of a graphic score, suddenly all of that ability to play is also like unlocked in a weird way. Um, but what, what do you think about that, Simon? Yeah, I totally, I totally agree. And uh, I would add on that, that graphic scores permits different type of types of brains to get access to musical expression. Um, it touched me what you said, Sammy, about, you know, the musical education and the, the, the rigor. And uh, when I was uh, doing my, when I was studying piano at the b very beginning, uh, I was told that I, I could never be a musician. Mm. I, I didn't have the skills I didn't have but actually I didn't have the same type of I didn't have the precise type of brain <laughs> that is required to do classical music um, and uh, because I'm a very persistent <laughs> person <laughs> I kind of got obstinated and <laughs> I, 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 I think I can claim to have become some kind of musician and uh, <laughs> and actually I think that the graphic scores um it permits yeah a different type of relationship with uh, with sound and with the 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 the, the actually technicity of producing sound and um when I'm in front of a graphic score on the piano, I feel I can do anything, and actually my fingers follow, and, and things happen. But when I'm in front of a Schubert uh, sonata, uh, it requires uh, a different way of uh, putting things together, and uh, I can do it. I, I've been, you know, I I, I went through <laughs> the labor of being able to do it, but I feel like I'll, I'm I'm very less skilled, and I have very less uh, means to do it. And actually, it took it took me a long time to accept that it's it doesn't mean I'm a bad musician. It just means I'm I'm I, I have other skills, and that I need other types of music to express those skills. And uh, it's not a matter of lesser or better. It's just. Uh, yeah, opening doors. And I think also the graphic scores permit to go back to playing traditional notation and you, you realize at some point, oh, <laughs> as you said, it opens it, it opens doors and you're like, oh, I can actually do very fast trills when I'm not like super stressed about having it on the fourth, uh, <laughs> on the fourth of that Mozart's uh, sonata, yeah. I mean, it makes perfect sense to me. I, I'm, I'm on board. Um, we should, we should listen to uh, the first of your pieces. So, so maybe tell us about. So, there's two excerpts from Ans Novembre. Maybe you can tell us about the first one, and we'll start there. 
So the, the 11 novembre, 11 heures at Diaz, uh, au Diaz 11. <laughs> it's a piece, uh, it's, it's actually my comeback to, to, uh, to the piano. I have, uh, I have been away from the instrument for, uh, for 10 years, maybe a bit more. Um, after doing my bachelor degree, I went in classical piano. I went into composition and for 10 years, I didn't. I was I was upset with the instrument <laughs> because I have been playing it since I was five years old and uh, it was never really a choice for me to play piano. Probably uh, if I had chosen, I would have become a singer or something or something that requires breath because breath is way more intuitive for me than uh, than finger play and memory. Memory is a, such a big part in playing piano and it's not my forte. <laughs> And, um, and also piano is, has lots of, um, strings attached. <laughs> I mean, it's very rooted in, in, a in a tradition, in multiple traditions, but one, one of those, especially in classical world is, um, competition. It's a very competitive instrument. Uh, when you start studying in piano, the, one of the first thing teachers would say is that you're probably won't ever do a career out of it because just to enter into studies in piano you need to be absolutely excellent <laughs> and after that to be able to uh, to 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 exist in the piano world it's all about doing piano competitions and and being able to if if you're not a soloist there's no no place in an orchestra so you need to do chamber music or to do accompaniment and to do accompaniment you need to be able to be to read music so fast and to to incorporate it in your body so fast and i could do that but it would stress the hell out of me <laughs> and in the end of my studies i developed a huge um stress reaction to playing piano and i was uh, my hands were shaking like <laughs> 10 centimeters right, right and left <laughs> just trying to put the fingers starting to play uh, <laughs> a simple piece and i couldn't do it anymore and i had to make the choice between using beta blockers or continuing to play piano and i decided i needed therapy more than going to beta blockers and that's what i did <laughs> and i totally respect those who chose to go to, directly to beta blockers everybody has their their own path but i uh, i chose i chose my own go into composition and take a break from <laughs> this devil's instrument and um yeah 10 years later the pandemic uh for two years all my projects i've been working so hard to make happen they all vanished and i was stuck in my very 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 small apartment in montreal <laughs> it's about 15 square meters so which is absolutely fine living on the in the downtown in, in le plateau uh, in montreal in normal life when you can go out and live your life outside but during confinement it was it was so hard <laughs> so at some point uh, i the piano got out of my closet like literally since i have an electric piano in <laughs> in my closet that that has been hiding there for years um and i started to go back to some schubert sonata <laughs> and uh, i started to go back to improvising and um 
and uh, I was going out with, uh, after a year, I started going out with a, a person that loved to listen to me play. And I just got back to creating that bond, playing for someone, playing for myself. And at some point, uh, Sammy, you told me, uh, oh, we're doing a festival. <laughs> oh, my, let's blame me now. Yes. <laughs> I said, well, well, yes, it's my fault. Yes. <laughs> but the, the opportunity was there so you said, we have a fe we have a festival uh it was still pandemic so i couldn't go there and uh i i recorded something i i wanted to do it the simplest way possible so i um i had a friend who worked in this amazing jazz bar in montreal called the jazz owns um, and uh, they told me I could rent the place for uh, for quite cheap, and the piano is amazing, and I had good memories of that place. And uh, I asked uh, one of my best friends, who's a sound engineer and composer, Kevin Gironi, to be the, my sound master, and uh, a good friend who's a super uh, ally for the trans community, um, Alexandre Tedal, to be uh, the film uh to to film the performance and it was just the three of us a martini and the piano and the second martini and the piano and uh <laughs> and we did like uh yeah we did a one shot recording of uh of uh 11 november at the Diaz, 11 at 11 which is just like the date the time and the place where the piece was performed which happened to have lots of 11s in the title <laughs> so that's the short story of <laughs> the excerpt and, and just to say it was played both online but we played it in the festival over a, over a break period and we had um it was a fest it was a trans festival in stockholm and we had over 100 people and it was absolutely fantastic and and people just loved it it was great to see and we put it up on the big screen and we had the great sound system it was fantastic so and thank you it was really excellent to do that it was really you know a, a really positive experience for us so thank you simon well let's have a listen Thank you. 
yeah so that was uh that was the first clip that we we got to listen to and so uh the next one is is a continuation of the same uh piece and so uh, maybe you can tell us a bit about uh, your your re uh re-entering of playing piano re re uh, renaissance of, of playing uh piano as a performer um how did it feel to record how did it uh feel to to come back to the instrument uh it felt like going back to a place with the instruments that was very specific it because my relationship to the piano has been very hard but also it it had become at some point in my life a, a kind of safe space um i come from a very troubled uh, household <laughs> to say the least and uh for some obscure reason playing the piano was kind of sacred so when i was playing piano nobody would come to me <laughs> And uh, the the older I became, the truer it, it was. So I kind of built this way of playing uh, in which I would just improvise for as long as possible because for as long as I was playing, I would not have trouble. <laughs> so it was kind of, uh, yeah, it was a safe space. And um, coming back to the piano after a 10 years break i came directly i came back directly to that to that safe space and it felt actually really good and uh, i was a bit stressed of going back to playing publicly um so actually having uh, having it pre-recorded has been a great solution because i didn't have the stress of like actually uh, facing an audience <laughs> uh, on the instrument because i've performed a lot of different things throughout the years in front of audiences and I never had a problem, but I had a specific problem with the piano. <laughs> and also um, I kind of linked, um, there was there was something about my piano playing uh, around the year 2000 <laughs> that was very much about uh, extreme expressivity and uh, playing lots of notes. <laughs> and it was, absolutely not in the um, in the vibe of the improvisation scene in the 200s uh, 2000 <laughs> in the year 2000 um and uh, there was something that i didn't understand at the time and that i couldn't transmit uh, also to the uh, i think to the free improv scene at the time is that uh, my ex super expressive playing of the piano and my playing a lot of notes didn't have to do with a show of virtuosity. I never cared about virtuosity. I can play very fast, <laughs> like most pianists, but it was never about that. And playing fast and loud was, as I, t as I said earlier, was more about a safe space. And more recently, I connected it to a, to a specific state of mind that is uh, known in the Middle Eastern tradition as Tarab. And, um, I I would not reclaim <laughs> that my music comes from Tarab, but it's more that I when I learned about this state of mind in music, specifically uh, in Egypt, I really I could project myself. Um, so this uh, way of doing music is specifically associated to the the most well known singer in the uh, Arab Arabophone. Uh, <laughs> 
countries or communities. Uh, she's called uh, Um Kalthum. And um, Um Kalthum would usually perform pieces that on CD would last like four or five minutes, maybe 10. But in real life, Uh, in concerts, they would last like two or three uh, hours. Mm. And wow. uh, being extremely expressive and extremely a lot in lamentations, but in a way that I don't know exists in the more accidental uh, musical scene. And it's, um, it's music that I've had in my ears for my whole life. My, my father was listening to, uh, to Um Kalthum nonstop when I was young, especially when we were driving to go up north, uh, in Valmorin, et cetera. And, uh, this, uh, and usually for one, for one hour drive, it would be only one song because, you know, it was that, that's the way Um Kalthum music works. And, uh, And playing music in that sense that you're you're in a, into a state of mind. You're not into a song. That's something that's been very important and uh, and precious for me. And uh, that's kind of the the spirit of the tarab to dive into a state of mind that is close to trance, and uh, but not a not a trance in a way that you relax or you you. Uh, it's it's more a trance in which you just dive into the emotions and <laughs> give it all <laughs> uh, and and it goes it goes on for the time it needs to go to go on so that's that's mostly what uh, 11 11 novembre 11 heures at dièse 11 is about <laughs> it, it it is kind of interesting because you know your your whole I guess musical, I don't want to say, excuse you, a genre, but I don't mean it because I don't think you've got a, a genre. I think it's kind of a wide scope of things. But I, I but, it, but you know, the, the tying up of this kind of very emotional feeling, the, the freedom of the scores uh, and all of this is kind of interesting when you, when you, you say you compare it with our normal tradition of music, which is, which is the very rigid. And, and here you've got this very flexible, kind of the songs last as long as they've got to last, I, you know, and kind of, and, and we've got, you know, you can play this as long as you get the spirit of it right. And I kind of feel that's, that's, I mean, I, I, it's so anti the Western tradition that we have of music. And I think it's fantastic that we, we kind of have, you know, we've dragged that, you've dragged that into, to the Western sphere, I think, because it's, it's exposing people to this different, rhythms and cultures and environment and way of thinking and i think that's kind of for me the really fascinating bit is this bringing in this new stuff for most people in the spirit of that music and in what i try to bring is this idea that it's it's about a state of mind and that is the new part of it because the the sound material you know um, when i i remember this moment uh, 20 years ago when i performed Uh, one of a piece that that can feel a lot like the one that is on my album, um, and after performing, uh, another pianist was due to perform, and uh, when we just crossed paths uh, in the backstage, and uh, and he said to me, "Oh, that was a lots of A minor uh, scales you just did," <laughs> and I mean, he was right. That was a lot of A minor, but. I felt, oh my God, that person just like went right beside the whole point of what I was doing. And that's unfortunate because yes, it was 
a lot of you know <laughs> musical material individually individual parts the material was nothing like exceptional but i think that the the spirit was very different and um that's what i i hope i can yeah humbly bring <laughs> to what you call the the occidental sphere yeah and i think for me just just to add to this i mean i think the the the, the bit about this is that you know um when you talk to a, a lot some classical musicians you know they kind of go okay so we've got the score it goes from a minor to this to this to this and we go up in the fifths and we've got this and this kind of register and all this kind of stuff and it really is fascinating I, i'm i'm you know i'm overly impressed with the way people play music but i always kind of feel they're missing the point sometimes i always feel that the the big thing for me as a listener of music is how does it make you feel hmm. And and I don't really care whether it's A minor, B flat, or you go up in fifths, or what instrument it's on. If it makes you feel something, that's the important thing. And I kind of, I kind of feel that's where your music's coming from. It's it it it's about feeling and yeah. and not this structure. And I kind of I kind of as a listener, that's why I kind of really like your music. Is it makes me feel stuff okay. as opposed <laughs> to always thinking. Oh gosh, you know, okay, we've got this classical, it's a sonata or it's this and it's in this. And so we're going to have this many parts and this many things and you can't applaud at this time and you can't do it. So I kind of, I kind of, that's why I kind of like this almost semi anarchic view of music, I guess is what I would say. And also it's very close to the feeling, but um, there is also a very big obsession for the precision of the feeling in my music. Uh, that's that's maybe my more rigid side. <laughs> when I when I rehearse with the musicians, that's where I put all my energy. It's to have a very 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 precise sense of what we are expressing, and it's not necessarily in the world's words. It's in it's in the music. It's in the sounds and how they interconnect. Yeah. Shall we take a listen to the second piece now then? Um, we'll do that. Thank you. 
the third piece that we're going to listen to uh, is inspired by a kind of a different uh, trajectory, if I'm if I am correct in knowing what the piece is. Uh, and so, tell us a bit about uh, Desert Mauve and where that comes from, and the uh, kind of writing behind it, and the artistry behind it, and then how it translates to the piece that we're going to listen to. Yes, Le Desert Mauve is a very old project. That's how I. I, I I've ever, I've always worked like building projects of over years, uh, decades sometime. And the Desert Mauve, it's an opera I've been working on since 2011. And uh, um, a partial premiere has happened in 2019, another partial premiere last year, and a new one in Montreal in September. Um, and there's lots of little elements of that big project that has existed in different forms in different contexts and uh, working in te tentacular projects that's something I, I love a lot so uh, Le Désamove it's an opera based on a very important book for me called uh, Le Désamove by Nicole Brossard uh, Mauve Desert in English and it's um, it's a very um, what I love about Nicole Brossard is that her writing is at the same time hyper emotional, connected to the body, and uh, very rooted in, in the heart. And at the same time, it's super intellectual <laughs> in a kind of fetishized way. It's, uh, <laughs> it's a very sexy way of being intellectual, I think. <laughs> and um, The book is in three parts. Uh, so the first part is uh, is a book in the book. Uh, it's called uh, Le Désarmove, and it's uh, the story of a 16 years, uh, 16, 15 years old uh, girl called Melanie who lives in Arizona with her uh, her mother and her mother's girlfriend, and in, in a kind of very fictional Arizona from the nineteen eighties where it's absolutely okay for a lesbian. Uh, couple to have a children and it's uh, yeah it's it's normal and that's something I like I love about Nicole is that her it, it's almost science fiction <laughs> the way she <laughs> she creates those images of like you know beauty and happiness uh, and it permits us readers I think to to just have I don't know create moments of uh, images of what our lives could be if we were not like always struggling <laughs> and fighting, you know, the 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 awful parts of uh, of uh, being queers. Um, so Melanie is uh, in living in the hotel that's owned by her mother, and uh, every night or so she takes her mother's car and drives into the desert to just feel alive, and uh, she discovers writing and how writing is uh, the most powerful tool to to create reality and uh, she dives into those very complex and very sensual ideas of um, actually the reality in which her body is living it's only one of the possibilities uh, of the incarnation of the possible of the possibilities and when you write you can choose any one of those incarnations and uh, yeah, so that's the first book, Melanie going into the desert. She falls in love with a, a, a um, 
with the geomètre and uh, who actually gets killed. You know, it's an opera, so somebody <laughs> has got killed. <laughs> <laughs> and there's also a, a, a mysterious man living in one of the rooms, and we understand that they are a scientist. He's a scientist um, working on the atomic bomb and, you know, some kind of uh, thriller kind of uh, writing. And then, you know, the first book, closes the first third of the 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 the, the, uh, the object book and then you enter into the second part that is called uh, a book to translate un livre à traduire and um it's a translator who lives in montreal who stumbles upon the first book in um in the in the uh, old books um old book bookstore and she uh, falls in love with that book uh, and she decides to translate it. So she uh, studies every character, every scene of the book, and she uh, invents dialogues between the, the characters, uh, amongst others, between the, the, the lady who gets murdered and the, and the author and the, the lady who gets murdered confronts the, the writer and says, but why did you need to have another woman killed. Why did you write that? And uh, she de develops lots of uh, dialogues like that that are very interesting and very confronting. And uh, the third part of the book is a translation of the first book from French to French, uh, in which every sentence uh, is exactly like in the, any translation, a little bit different, a little bit a lot the same. It's a little bit of a uh, trahison uh, from the translation from the translator who uh, who involves themselves uh, against their will inside the text. Um, so some sentences completely change the meaning of of some uh, some events in the book, etc. And uh, uh, yeah, so it's a very sensual. At the same time, a very sensual book, and at the same time, a very beautiful intellectual game. Uh, so I was drawn upon that thing. I fell in love also into uh, for the book, and uh, I decided to put that into an opera. And um, for my album, I decided to try to perform a piano reduction of one of the movements, um, a movement about the, the the woman who gets murdered. Uh, Angela, Angela Parkins, and uh, also I tried to I tried to put myself in the position of the musicians uh, to whom I'm asking all the time. I've been asking for the past fifteen years to you know perform the graphic scores, and now I'm the one trying to do it. So uh, so that's what's happening in that piece. <laughs> So, so this is um so what we've got here is a is a just to clarify is a piano reduction from the original opera which uh which is also available so we just mentioned that that people can get hold of that one because that's that's also great yeah so we'll take a listen
Well, it's 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 I, that's the first time I've heard the the piano reduction, of course. But uh, I've encountered your uh, mauve in a couple places before because I've I've just um, I, I think I used it in a talk that I gave and we and and different things. So it's it's neat for me to hear the the piano reduction as well. I think we we should also mention to people who uh, just because we haven't mentioned it as as a fact that some of your uh, artwork. I mean, you, maybe you can put it in a bit of context for for scale and, and uh, shape and things. Is uh, I think maybe sometimes people, maybe when they're listening, they, they think it's on an eight and a half by eleven uh, sheet of paper, which is just not the case for for much of your work. Uh, some of your pieces are are gigantic in scale, and so uh, not only are they um, beautiful when you look at them, maybe on the screen, like your 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 video. Um, animations and, and versions that are, are being scanned, but um, some of them are multi-story high. Like, tell us a bit about uh, maybe the creation process of like how you go about painting uh, and, and working, but also uh, give us give us an idea of the scope of these. Because I think what it does for me when I listen to them is it also translates to how I hear it because it's, they're also so grand, like in, in physical space, you know? Yeah, I think that was the first element that really positively shocked me about using graphic scores as as a composer um, was how much the medium impacts the music um, before using graphic scores i was doing sketches that were also graphic and i was translating them into a finale <laughs> which is a notation software uh, that is a nightmare for every composer <laughs> using <laughs> classical Correct, yes. classical music notation together with its uh, sibling sibelius which is not <laughs> greater no no better really no better yeah <laughs> but uh, the point is that there's a kind of physical uh, reflex when composing in on the computer of you know there's a certain number of pages you can grasp with the eye and um, you know there's a, there's a certain length of music you can put into one page and it tends to have an impact on on the music itself it's it's a normal reflex yeah so melodies would tend to have subdivisions that is more linked to the paper than to the music and um, that's uh, one of the first thing I realized when I started to um, to use different formats for my graphic uh, writing. Uh, some musical elements I would write on very very small element uh, pieces of paper and uh, with the graphite, let's say, and uh, they would have a certain musical feel. And some others, I would, uh, as you say, uh, paint on uh, on buildings <laughs> with uh, uh, industrial painting material and uh, with a very physical relationship to, you know, uh, drawing a line <laughs> takes a humongous amount of energy. And uh, I feel that this translates directly into the music. And I've did I, I've done lots of experiments, and I'm still doing them. Um, while painting, I I sometimes work uh, on uh, rice paper rolls, so they're like uh, sixty feet or something long. Um, so I 
I try to find places in which I can have the, the whole role open in front of my eyes so I can paint elements, musical elements that are very, very large in, in their breadth and uh, in their, um, in their scope. And uh, so the musical elements element in the end uh, can be like 20 minutes long. And that's one musical object. And uh, some other elements I would paint uh, on, uh, on square, uh, huge piece of paper, and they would become maybe some more global uh, global drawings. And I, if I write, I do them on the floor or, or on the wall, it changes a lot the music that comes out of it. So for every project, the first thing I decide is where I'm going to work. And then which material, which colors, uh, for instance, my uh, the latest piece I'm working on uh, for the Alkali Collective uh, is um, uh, it, it's, a, it's the continuity of, of a piece I've written for uh, Orchestre de l'Agora for, uh, for my best friend and, and orchestra. And my best friend is an electroacoustic uh, performer. He's called Gabriel Ledoux. And uh, the first thing I did when I started working on that piece was to go with him to the paint shop. And there's a beautiful independent paint shop in Montreal called Kama Pigment, and they have those crazy colors and those crazy materials. And uh, yeah, we spent like an hour there choosing the colors and he he picked more than I did, uh, like those super flashy colors that I would never have thought of using. like super flashy green and uh, fluorescent yellow and uh, and whatnot and uh, the paper that would be according uh, that, that was uh, connected to that and uh, in resonance to that visual world i decided to uh, also use found uh, found objects i used a lot of gummy bears <laughs> and of <laughs> and of teddy bears uh, that I uh, that I cut in, into pieces, uh, lots of shiny stuff, and it's uh, it's a piece that became uh, extremely uh, way too much vivid. <laughs> it's uh, it's kind of yelling colors. I I couldn't work on it too long because it was kind of hurting my brain because, <laughs> as we remember, for me it's sound, so it's kind of like. Wow. <laughs> very intense <laughs> and uh, I was working on that score in the 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 House of Literature in Quebec City in which I had a residency which was a very calm place all <laughs> white walls and super uh, yeah super uh, apaisant, a super calming environment so I would come with my big uh, flashy uh, green cardboards and glue uh, gummy bears <laughs> and also use papyrus uh, and with those gummy bears and it's just so flashy so so yeah and it was all connected to my my friend's personality on what or what I can project on him <laughs> and uh, so when you when you've got this I just just kind of curious here you've got this very say one of these huge great visual scores do you then just say to bring the musicians into that room and go look here it is because i mean because i kind of i can kind of imagine going in there and and the size of it may be very you know sort of affects how you actually deal with it so is that the score they actually use or do you give them smaller versions of it or something or is this it this big thing is that is that what they use 
that that has been a, a very ongoing issue uh, because for me it's very important that the musicians see the the actual scores, but it's almost never possible for so down to earth uh, reasons. <laughs> and um, but you know, in every project, I try to get closer to my ideal, and I'm working on another project for that has been postponed like a, a thousand times before because of the pandemics. It's a um, duet for um, Yana Luxt and Sarah Constant, who are respectively uh, flutist and pianist, and uh, they um, commissioned me a piece, uh, a, a 3D graphic score. Um, and, uh, actually I, I think I'm going, I'm going to get for the first time this relationship uh, for the first time in, in 15 years, I, I had something 15 years ago in, uh, in Finland that actually the performers were playing the, the real scores, but it, I, I couldn't do it for a long time because the context was not there. So for them, um, I've paired with the visual artist called the Eloise Plamondon Pagé. And we worked together on a very long, uh, on only two uh, rice paper rolls uh, in my sister's basement. <clears throat> and because, you know, the, the places where I paint are very important to me. So being there with my nieces, helping to uh, to hold the papers while they were drying and, and everything, it really uh, percolated <laughs> in the music. And uh, we're going to print we we scanned everything and with the help of a very ingenious uh, computer uh, artist um alex burton we're going to uh scan it and reprint it on a humongous <laughs> roll of um of uh, fabric mm. wow and uh with at the centre sagami who are Printing, who's a printing art center in the Saguenay-Lac-Saint-Jean. And uh, this very huge uh, textile is going to be hanging and uh, the, the, the two performers will go around the, 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 the structure <laughs> and uh, we'll find a way to make them perform. <laughs> Still a lot of things to figure out, but they're going to perform according to where they are in space uh the the score so we'll probably get a bit farther again from you know the precision of what i have in my ear but closer to a poetical relationship to the to the material to the fabric of the music pun intended yes <laughs> i mean it's almost like a crossover here between you know you see this 3d graphic art on on the computer and and you see this kind of stuff on the computer and you're actually taking it out to the physical space in a sense here and you're you're actually taking graphical art combined with the music into 3d which i think is fantastic really i mean you know there have been some other you know musicians who've had music played around things and this kind of thing but with the graphic side of it as well that's kind of fascinating are they going to be able to i'm just kind of curious now are they going to be able to choose where they walk or or is you going to have a path for them so i kind of i kind of is it sort of random walk and i'm going to sing this and this or are you going to make them sort of you know actually uh i'm i've i've always been working in this way that uh i feel of myself more as a choreographer than uh, than a, than a composer <laughs> so i work with the musicians to establish 
the best relationship possible with the poetical world, the poetical and musical world we're building. Um, so we already had some rehearsals and we are, we're choosing to get together which parts are the most in interesting and which point of view uh, it's the most um, fecund. It's, uh, it has the most uh, possibilities and the most, uh, yeah, the potential. So uh, certainly what we'll do is that the four of us, uh, Eloise, uh, the two performers and myself will do is that we'll, we'll work together, we'll find a way to install the score in space because it's going to go in tour. So every space, it'll be uh, different. And we already talked about the fact that the duration will also be different from one place to the other, depending on how the the fabric is disposed and is uh, installed in the in this the art spaces or in the concert halls. Um, and together we'll discuss trajectories and possibilities of trajectories. So in the end, probably some elements are going to be fixed, and some others will be way more open and. Yeah, well, trying to find a way, <laughs> and also we're. I'm discover. I I didn't know those two performers before, so I'm discovering their relationship with because I think everybody that revolves around the classical music world has some obsession with precision, but it's just uh, impersonated in different ways, <laughs> and uh, I don't know yet what's their take on that. So we'll probably discover discover it while working because. Uh, beforehand i'm it's just yeah it's not not sure yeah that sounds a lot of fun most definitely i think that's that's what i where i'm i've been aiming without knowing it for the past 15 years is to have more and more <laughs> fun doing arts <laughs> and like doesn't mean we're not going into really deep stuff but <laughs> it's important for me that we feel like good after playing and rehearsing and that the the yeah there's a there's energy circulating yeah it's scary territory though i mean it, it you you spend so many years having the fun uh kicked out of you from the oh my god yeah. <laughs> it's it's so ingrained in how we learn classical music that it isn't fun you're not here for fun you're here for business it's so it's so ingrained in how we uh, have that interaction. And so it takes a lot of, I mean, deprogramming may be a little heavy of a word, but it takes so much deprogramming to like have fun playing music and interacting in a, and especially, I mean, it's funny spaces, um, uh, concert halls come with, again, you talk about like instruments with so much baggage and, and so much uh, personal history with things, but the concert halls obviously come with so much baggage and history and expectation and, and all of these things. And to enter those spaces and have it be, fun and interactive and maybe silly and maybe uh still evoke a lot of heavy emotion but maybe it's okay to feel those emotions out loud that's such a complicated thing to unravel in those spaces but uh, but it takes people like you who are intentionally doing this to be able to you know uh, de-intensify those spaces a little bit and also, I, I think I, I tap a lot into the fun that I've seen classical performers have in very specific contexts. When you, when you permit brass instruments to play loud in mala music, yeah, I mean they're having so much fun, and it's very you know complex and dramatic music. But 
just tell them for one minute to, you know, trombone, you can play loud. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I think we can tap in into that, that space of meaning and enjoyment. Yeah. And it's okay. We don't need to be uh, all Christian about it, like suffering is good and all. <laughs> yeah, right? And it's part of that like generic queering of the space, like the, the, the bleeding through of uh, expectation and reality and having fun and still accessing those emotions and still uh, having all of the understanding of what it is we're playing. But yeah, play loud, play with passion, play, you know, all the things. I kind of hear what you say about the music, but I kind of have to throw in here that I think society as a whole tries to beat the fun out of you, quite frankly. Well, yes. <laughs> I mean, I yeah. mean, it's kind of its role, right? You know, it's kind of what it does. You know, you've got to take everything so seriously. You've got to do this. And I think one of the things I know Jake and I have talked about a lot and, and we're, we're kind of always come round to is that queer spaces and and the queer community tend to go against that i tend to push against that and push the boundaries out to, to be more fun if you like or more to push the boundaries beyond the convention so i kind of i kind of feel this is kind of a you know the music is in but it's, it's it's bigger than the music if you see what i mean it's almost it's almost bigger than that it's about it's about how we view the world in a sense and and I, we always end up with this jacob don't we we always end up on this we do <laughs> but it's true i mean there's all these queer spaces and all these these queer uh ideas around whether it's performance or not is about pushing back against and there's such an important thing uh to to push back against like there's there's so many things being imposed upon people and so much heaviness and so much expectation and i really genuinely love that queer performance, because that's what we're talking about right now, but like queerness in general pushes back and it really intentionally pushes back and reclaims and reclaims some of those spaces against uh, feeling so shitty often. And I, I would add on that, that it's, um, I think there's pure fun. <laughs> that's <laughs> something I think we're reclaiming and it's perfectly good, but I, I, I often at this moment, I'm I'm thinking about a lot about the fact that it's it's also a subversion meta, method. It's a it's a tool. It's a very very powerful tool, because I think that you know haters don't want us to have fun. <laughs> they they want us to like just <laughs> be yeah. miserable at some point. And showing glitter, it's there is a superficial part that I love about glitter, but there's also a resistance in the glitter. And it's something I reclaim a lot. I've been reclaiming a lot recently. Um, I don't know when I was in, in Paris, I mean, uh, we, we often forget how much French society is ultra conservative and ultra homogeneistic. And, um, and being in the streets in Paris for, uh, to, 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 just going back and forth uh, from my my Airbnb to the to the book festival, uh, I had so many verbal aggressions like all the time because I was just visible. I was just existing, you know. And I think two two options were there. I could down <laughs> downgrade my my visibility, which would would be totally fine. And sometimes I do that when I just can't take it anymore. I just 
you know, I, I base myself and I think it's, it's, it's a survival strategy that is more than okay. And, um, when I have the energy, I glitter myself up and it's a kind of, you know, it's a, it's a effort you. <laughs> it's like, you, you, you want me to beige up? Not today. Today I have the energy and you'll see me fabulous. And it's, it's, it's a mean of, a mean of resistance because what can they do? I mean, <laughs> they can, they can vocalize how much they, they, they find me weird, but you know, I'm reclaiming my weirdness. I'm happy about it and you know, whatever. <laughs> so, yep. I'm just going to add one thing. I don't want to come across like a, a Simon super fan here too much, okay? <laughs> but, but, but actually I, and when I started listening to your music, I think probably and seeing your scores a couple of years ago, I think it was Simon. I started to 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 to, um, to look at them and understand them more. I must admit, your your scores and that actually gave me a real positivity about myself. Oh, um, just because <laughs> of just because of the sort of I don't know what it is the, the outpouring of emotion in them and and that kind of thing, and it actually sent to me a big signal about what it what what you can do as a queer person and mm. and what you should be pushing back against so i, I kind of haven't again i don't want to be the super fan who's like you know and all this but but i do have to thank you for that because it was something that actually gave me a push through some difficult times so oh. thank you thanks for voicing it thanks for naming it it's uh, it's very uh, it's it's very help helping to to have those feedbacks <laughs> for you know I put them in my pockets for the you know the days when <laughs> it's much needed. <laughs> so thank you so much for for voicing that. That's it's actually why why I do it. I you know it's it's most important I think to to show that we yeah we we can we can be expressive and it's okay and it's good. <laughs> well, hopefully this this. Uh, podcast will help as well and spread the word a bit and and that and and i guess um yeah thank you so much for your time simon i know you have been very busy and that and, and it's appreciated and um well, thanks so much for the invitation and for the time you're taking both of you into making this uh, project exist and our voices heard it's uh, uh yeah oh, the it's, value it's... is inc immense Truly our pleasure. I mean, every time we, we get to talk with somebody, it's uh, just so exciting to to talk with everybody, but also just to have a platform to have other people learn about what uh, queer people are doing in the arts. It's, it's so fantastic to be able to uh, spread that love around. So it's a, it's a self-love party. We're all, we're all excited for each other, but um, it's, uh, it's always nice to talk to you, Simone. And uh, thank you for being here. Thanks. So that's all for this episode. You've been listening to the Classical Queer Podcast and Jake and I look forward to being with you next month. The incidental music is courtesy of Jared Miller and the show was produced by Samantha Jane.